Hi, welcome to the Neshamas Podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to empower our community and promote mental and emotional health primarily through education. We'll listen to personal experiences, the pain and struggle of mental illness, and how members of our community have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Dolchanan. I am a professional life coach with over a decade of experience in addiction recovery and self-development. Please join me. Listen to the stories of these heroes and know that you are not alone. This week's episode is sponsored in honor of Fega Devora Chaim Mushka Bas Shoshana for Irfur Shalema Ukrova. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Neshamas podcast. Today, we are honored to have Bashi Naparstak. She's a mother of seven. Bashi grew up in Montreal. She actually just graduated with her bachelor's in education and is working towards becoming a psychoeducator. Bashi has, Baruch Hashem, overcome so many of her own challenges, living with undiagnosed bipolar anxiety and depression. She's been through multiple hospitalizations in a psychiatric ward and has Baruch Hashem found recovery and self-acceptance through working the 12 steps. She also has since taken it upon herself to become a mental health advocate. And that's one of the reasons, I guess, why you're here. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Well, welcome, Bashi. And thank you so much for being here and being willing to share your story. You and your husband as a unit is a light in a dark room. The idea that something like this is possible, where a couple not only stays together, but then alchemizes it and becomes an inspiration to others is a beautiful possibility that you're inviting others to as well, because this is uh, the things that you guys struggle with is actually more common than people would imagine. It's not super common to have everybody together and for you guys to have think, work, things worked out. So I just wanted to compliment and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Throughout this journey, our approach has been turn darkness into light, because that's you know our only option after going through so much. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. Will you please just bring us into the story? Who was Bashi you know, growing up and, and when did things start turning for you? I grew up in a from family, an Orthodox family, seven children. I'm a twin sister. And I really grew up in my twin sister's shadow for many years. And like you said, you know, it was an undiagnosed, then it was undiagnosed depression and anxiety. So my sister, I hid behind a lot of her strengths. I, in school, got good marks. I seemed to have friends. I was at home. No one realized at any point as I was growing up that I was going through so much inside. Can you tell me more about what do you, what do you mean by hid behind her strengths? For example, when I would have social anxiety come up or as an introvert, I'd go to a party and I'd really want to be home instead of being there. Her strengths were very different, her and I, but she had many strengths that helped me through the years. And for example, one of them is that she was very sociable, funny, did not have that issue hanging out with friends like I did. So going out with her and just being in her shadow and kind of sitting there joining her helped me get through those years. But when I was out with her, with friends, I was constantly living in my head. I was constantly second guessing myself. My self-esteem was like very, very low. And I just was never really present. 
I was always questioning myself, doubting, comparing myself to others, you name it. Like I, I, I never really felt like I had friends or that I had people who, if they knew what I was really going through internally, would accept me. And that was like a big, big fear that I lived with for many, many, many years. When you say I would doubt myself and you lived in your head, what are the type of dialogues and what are the type of what was happening? One of like the main themes was, you know, why are you so different? Why can't you just enjoy yourself with those girls? Look at that girl. Look at that one. They have it together because everybody shows their strengths on the outside. I didn't know what they were going through inside. But for me, it was, you know, why why are you so complicated? Why are you so like always thinking? It was basically always doubting myself and not accepting that part of me. Was that the language like in you? Like, why are you? Or was it like, what's wrong with me? And why am I like that? I've learned in therapy that I think others ju judge me, but she's made me realize my psychologist that I judge myself and I kind of project that from other people. So I think when I was young, it was, why am I? And then further on in adulthood, it, those messages became, why are you? So it was really from a judgmental point of view. When you go through those dialogues, when you hear yourself say that, like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be like anybody else? What's your conclusion? So it's interesting because in AA, they say, pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. Mm -hmm. So it's really, you know, that going down that road of self-pity doesn't lead to any good. My only strategy that I did then was um, I would journal. I would because I had nobody to speak to, therapy. How old were you journaling? I probably started journaling maybe at 13, 14. And I just wrote and wrote. I wrote all the thoughts down. I wrote what, what was going on inside me. I didn't have any names to put to them. I didn't have the word anxiety, depression, social anxiety. But I just wrote because it was the safest thing I could do. I didn't have to share it with anyone. I didn't have to reveal any of those secrets that I was writing in my diary or my journal to anyone else. And so I kind of felt safe knowing that on the outside I put on this show and I, I displayed, you know, a very confident girl maybe or someone who was fun to be around. But on the inside, I was constantly in turmoil. How did you discover the therapeutic pen and paper? I don't know. I guess it was a gift from God that it was something that um, I probably tried writing it down once. I, I remember like recess would come and I would have a lot of social anxiety just knowing that in a few minutes the bell's going to ring. Now we need to converse and, and, and play and, and talk. And I didn't know what, what's the first word I'm going to say and how am I going to go over to that girl and what will she think of me? So I would really hide behind my books. I'd pretend I was studying. I'd pretend I was davening. Whatever I can do to, to, to get through those maybe 15 minutes of recess and then when my depression started getting worse through school, I would actually go to the back stairwell where nobody was and I would just sit with a pen and paper and just write and cry. I didn't know why I was so different and why I was doing that. Now I know it was, you know, clinical depression. But then my journal was my best friend. There was no judgment on those pages. I was able to write anything I wanted to. I was able to uh, you know, even write forcefully and rip the page and I didn't get into trouble. So it was really my best friend through those years. Again, therapy wasn't so okay. It was more taboo then. I didn't even think of going to a school social worker or getting help for myself. Even my parents didn't pick up on what was happening. I wasn't open with them about it. So it really went undiagnosed for many, many years. So at the end of the day, just going back to that last question, like you never really reconciled that. You never answered that question, like what's wrong with me? You just 
kept writing it down and right and, and just being with like having having your pen and paper i'm just like imagery yeah um as your witness yeah exactly exactly until i mean many years later if we fast forward when i actually joined the 12 steps of emotions anonymous which is an emotional support group and emotional health and recovery and what attracted me to the program was that i went on the website and it kind of had this checklist of did you ever feel different did you ever feel and i just checked off on all those you know all the boxes were ticked off and i and i i was like wow i've never felt so understood in my life so it was the first time in my life that those thoughts and feelings were validated. What were the consequences of what's been going on for you? I think it was a lot of self-bashing, self-pity, isolation, because if anyone really knew, you know, who I really was inside, they would they would reject me. They were, a lot of fear, a lot, a lot of fear, fear of, of rejection, fear of failure, fear of, uh, fear of stigma. I mean, I lived with that fear for many, many years. Did you ever experience any of these things of rejection, of failure? That's a good question. Not really, but maybe it's because I didn't share it with anyone for many, many years. Okay. And when I did start sharing, it was in very safe rooms. It was in, the, it was in a 12-step meeting. So there was so much self-acceptance and not, no judgment and, you know, the, the confidentiality. And it was such a safe environment that when I did start sharing, there was so much love and acceptance. And that's really what I needed to start accepting myself. How, how old were you when you attended Emotions Anonymous? I joined Emotions Anonymous when my daughter was about one and a half, two years old, and she's nine now. So I want to say about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was after my first hospitalization in the psych ward. How else did your depression and anxiety manifest itself as a teenager or as a young adult? So I was living with depression. I kind of think of depression. Some people ask, you know, what does depression feel like? What does it look like? So I'm, I'm a very visual learner. I think of depression as I've learned in Emotions Anonymous, feelings are like the weather. They're like clouds. So for me, depression is just like this cloud that's just sitting overhead filled with you know it's gonna it's gonna pour and it but it's just sitting there and so for me like the sunshine there's no sunshine and maybe I had like a glimmer of sunshine here and there I want to clarify that this struggle really started at puberty like when I started probably eighth grade so up until then there was sunshine in my life and I had you know but when feelings started coming and hormones I really it's through my body started not rebelling but started struggling internally and I guess that was the, probably one of the reasons is because it was also undiagnosed bipolar disorder, which I found out many years later. So how it manifested itself was depression, isolation. I wouldn't go out with friends. But it, again, I was functional. I was getting through school. I was getting good grades. Up until seminary, my first year of seminary, I was okay, so to speak. I was surviving, but I was okay on the outside and I was managing until summer after my first year of seminary and many stressors led to this attack, but I had a full-blown anxiety attack for the first time in my life. And it kind of like everything just built up and it was years and years and years of not, of not taking care of this condition. It wasn't just like it happened in a second, but it kind of did because that summer was an absolute disaster. Nobody saw it coming. 
And I want to preface by saying that even before this anxiety attack came on, my twin sister had flown across the world for seminary. It was the first year we were separated. And this came about right when she came back to town. Because when she left, I had kind of like this identity crisis where I started discovering myself without having a twin sister by my side. I started realizing, oh, I am funny. For me, it was very black and white growing up with a twin. But here I was funny. Friends wanted to hang out with me. And she wasn't my shadow anymore. So it gave me such a boost of self-confidence. I had an amazing first year of seminary. And when she was coming back, something in me started happening. And at that point, my mom actually sent me to a psychologist who picked up on it and said to me, you know, Bashi, you're a jack in the box. When your sister's out, you come out. Oh, and then when she comes back, you go back in. And she really tried preventing what was going to happen. But, you know, God had his plans and she couldn't. I think it was too far into the, into the game, I guess, that the moment my sister walked out of the terminal, everything inside me shut down. And that was the beginning of the end, kind of, well, the beginning of my rock bottom where everything continued going. So that's a hard thing because dealing with a mental health challenge or an emotional challenge, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be nurtured and taken care of. But because it was undiagnosed, our plans for the summer just kept going and they only made it worse. So for example, my first month was head counselor in a camp with my sister. I was non-functional. I was, I had gone right back into depression, into that dark place. I wasn't functional. My sister had to step in. What does non-functional mean? In bed whenever I could. I did make it to camp in the mornings, but I wasn't even able to express myself in front of all these campers that I was supposed to be leading. My voice was very, very low, constantly wanting to be alone because for me, my thoughts had so much power that everything needed to stop so I can pay attention to the thoughts. Like they had to be taken care of. I kind of believed, and that's probably why I started writing early on, that if I figure out this issue that's in my mind, I'll be okay. But obviously that never helped. And always wanting to fix myself, you know, to make it better. And then the summer went on. We Somehow I got through that month. Again, nobody picked up that this girl is in very deep depression and she needs help. My anxiety was through the roof. And the plans for second month was fly to England to a seminary friend and be a counselor. And I did. I got on that plane with depression, with anxiety, through the roof. And I flew out there and slowly, slowly, I started not functioning even more to the point where I wasn't able to talk. I completely shut down. I was sleeping in as much as I can. I wasn't showering as often as I, I do. Um, I just was not able to take care of myself. I was, I mean, when we think of like an emotional illness, it's the same, so to speak, as a physical illness. But when it's a physical illness, you know, people understand and say, you know, I get it. Like you just had an operation, relax, you know, but when it's an emotional illness, it's real and it, it's paralyzing. I, I couldn't function. Would we be able to, if you can, kind of press play on slow motion? The moment, like what's your experience the you know, physical experience, the internal dialogue as your sister is coming out of the terminal? I think as much as I wanted to um, apply the strategies that the psychologist had given me, I, they, I, did, I couldn't even think of them in that moment. Um, I want to say my heart was probably beating really, really, really fast. I was terrified of what was happening. Were you feeling like an overwhelming sensation? Of yeah. 
Yeah. A tingling. Probably. Most probably. Yeah. And again, this is happening on the inside. Nobody sees it on the outside. I'm standing with family members. We have our flowers, our balloons, but this was happening inside me. And then she walked out. I saw her face and everything. It was like a shut door, like everything just closed. I clammed up. My confidence was just gone. Everything, everything went. And, you know, I'm very close with my sister and I owe her so much and she's wonderful and supportive. And obviously none of this was her fault at all. It was, you know, my pre-existing condition with, you know, and, and my weaknesses that contributed to this. And as a twin sister, I've always had people, you know, tap me and say, does she feel it? But recently my sister said she was the only one in that moment that knew what was happening inside me. So we have a very strong connection. But again, nobody could prevent what happened in that moment. When you feel overwhelmed and you have all this confidence inside and you shut the door, what, what don't you want out? So I, it's, not a, a, it's not something that I can control. Right? It's not like a decision that I'm making, okay, I'm closing up. It just happened. What were you instinctively, like what, what was a part of you trying to protect you from? Right, that's a good question. I think it was, it was a protection. It was a way of protecting myself. I also didn't know how to live with both realities. I didn't know how to be that confident girl who everyone loved and, you know, and, and I had so much fun and, and I didn't know how to live with both those realities. I couldn't make sense of them. And I guess my bodies and my emotions, my whole being like that, the response was what I knew. Um, I've learned in therapy at one point, you know, growing up, I, I developed perfectionism and I got it really good. Really, I, I perfected it <laughs> and it worked for me. It was kind of a protection as I was growing up, but in, or into adulthood, I kind of continued that practice and then it didn't serve me well. Right. And when you say perfectionism, you're talking about a super high expectation of yourself yes. and, and the world around you. Yes. Unrealistic expectations. And so I think I'm saying I'm sharing it because what happened in that moment where my body or and everything in me went back to that state of surviving, not even living that state of survival was kind of all I knew. So again, it probably was a protective mechanism. When was the first time you went for help? In England, um, my friend's mother called my mom and said, you have to come pick up your daughter. She's not doing well. And this was after about three weeks already. Um, I owe it to her, you know, because that was really the first step towards healing. And my mom flew out. She flew me back to Montreal. And at that point, again, I was unresponsive, not non-functional. Just at that point, I was just binge watching, um, just eating any kind of form of pleasure that I can get in that moment because there was no pleasure in my life. I was, it was a very, very deep depression along with a full-blown anxiety attack. My mom has always, been, has always taken the holistic approach she always did, um, you know, uh, Allah Shalom, she passed away last year. And she brought me to all different holistic doctors and tried everything until her last resort was a psychiatrist. So I found myself in a psychiatrist office. Again, at that point, I wasn't responsive. So I kind of just followed her to these places. I ended up in the psychiatrist office. And that was the first time in my life that I'd ever heard the name psychiatrist. I thought 
this and this kind of you said, you know, what was the conclusion of my thoughts? This was the conclusion of my thoughts. Look at this, you know, you have to be put on medication. You're in a doctor's office. You just couldn't get it together. And I believe that nobody for sure, nobody from because I'd never heard of people struggling with this. Nobody from had ever been to this doctor. And Hashem gave me a gift that when I walked into the waiting room, there was somebody Jewish there. And that gave me just a little bit of support knowing that I'm not the only Jew going through this. Again, this is this was my reality because nobody was talking about these struggles then. Right. And here you are being that Jew. Yeah. Yeah. You're being that Jew. Technically, you could have been that Jew for that person. Yes. And you're also being that Jew in this interview for, for others. Yes, 100%. And, and that's why I've decided to share, you know, because that feeling of loneliness is a killer. It's probably even worse than, for me at least, it's worse than the mental health challenges and the emotional struggles. It's the hiding and the shame. But going back to that psychiatrist's office, that was the first time I was put on medication. It was an antidepressant. Um, I didn't want to take it. Again, I grew up in a very holistic home. My mom was a midwife for many years. Um, believed in natural remedies and, and natural way of healing. But she said, you got to take it, you got to take it. And it started working after a few weeks. And that's when I was able to go back to my regular life. So the medication worked, but the underlying symptoms, the root of the problem was not addressed. And that's happened quite a few times in my life. It also happened a few years before that in ninth grade when I was practically anorexic. And I've learned as an adult that that stems from anxiety and depression a lot of the time. And so even when I went to an eating disorders clinic and they helped me get back on track, nobody dealt with the root of the problem. Where was that coming from? Why did I try to starve myself for so many months? And so then again, you know, yes, I was on medication. Yes, I was functional, but nobody dug deeper and figured out what is wrong with Bashi? Why is she going through these different episodes? And it wasn't meant to be. I really believe, you know, everything happens in Hashem's timing. So... I started teaching after seminary. I got married to a wonderful man, Shua. And I was still living under this veil of pretense of just faking it to everyone. As much as I shared my story with my husband when we were dating, because I wanted him to know who he was marrying and I wasn't going to hide medication from him. And he accepted me with my struggles. I didn't accept myself. I wasn't at this place of self-acceptance and self-love and I was still doubting myself and second guessing. And I really believed because the fear was so real that if he knew the real me and if anyone knew the real me, they would run away from me. Yeah, I, I relate to that a lot. I remember the moment I was looking in the mirror the last night that I, that I had drunk and it's just so clear to me if if you hated the guy in the mirror as much as I hated him, you'd want to kill him too. Yeah. What happened after that? Like once you got married, um, life seems to like, okay, the ducks are in order. I mean, there's still a lot going down underneath, yeah. but you're still able to function in the outside. Yeah. When did it spill over? So... I got married and it was always like the next thing in my life is going to fix everything. It's going to make it all better. So that was I'll get married and everything will be fine. And then obviously I struggled after marriage. Then it was I'll have my first baby and everything's going to be okay. And then I had my first baby and then postpartum depression with my first. 
not knowing that sleep is a big trigger for me and I need my sleep and I wasn't getting it. So I slipped into postpartum depression with my first and then life went on. Um, I had Baruch Hashem two more. So we had three little ones and I was still struggling. Nothing fixed it. How did you get out of the anorexia? I owe so much to my mother. She was always fighting for me and, and finding cures and, and whatever she needed to find for me at that time. And I think it was that I got so unhealthy that I, I really wanted to live and, and, and have a family. And it was, you know, it got to the point she really helped me before I would have been hospitalized. And I was, I was ready to get better because of that motivation. I wanted a family. I wanted to have children. And at the state I was in, it didn't look pretty. Is it correct to say that I think some people who go so deep into their anorexia can lose their ability to have children? Yes. Yeah. And I had lost that for one year. And so that was... Um, what does that mean? Like lost menstruation for a year. Wow. So that was scary for me. Like knowing that maybe I wouldn't be able to conceive. It, was, it wasn't an option. And I was going to do everything I could to be healthy, to be able to be a mom. And you slowly, like, where your mom, like, helped you and you were nursed yeah. back to life? Yeah. Well, can you share a little bit about that process? Well, you know, they call it anorexia nervosa, right? So it's, it's, it is like the mind, it's, from what I understand, it's, it's a way to take control. And because I didn't have control in so many areas of my life, I couldn't control my surroundings, my social life, things that I took to heart being very sensitive this was a way, a form of gaining control. And so I was, I was able to condition myself and control every single thing that went into my body and exercise like crazy, whatever I could to, to regain a form of control. Cause I had very little control at that point in my life and I still don't have control. And was the main thing that you wanted to control was your inside or was like, let me control my outside stimulation so that my insides so that I can control my stimulation and then eventually realizing that people are not going to do exactly what I want is that what it is it was also it stemmed from a very low self-confidence I was never really very big I wasn't overweight but I was never skinny enough like the other girls and again I was always comparing myself because of my low self-esteem so um I had lost weight from the flu for a week. I think I hadn't eaten. And when I came back to school, I was getting some attention. And that's really where it, start, where it began, where I realized, hey, I get attention when I'm thin. And that was like, in my mind, well, then let's go down that. It was, it just happened. You know, again, I didn't choose, I didn't um, intentionally want to starve myself, but it was a way of gaining more self-confidence, of getting control. So it was, in, at that point, it was like a, positive thing for me to do because it would give me so many things that I didn't have but obviously it caused more harm and it it was really dangerous I was at a, a very delicate point when my mom thank God intervened and helped me Baruch Hashem. did it uh, ever come back that uh, type of behavior no, no. Baruch Hashem, it's been since then I've had a uh, uh, and Baruch Hashem, I've had a healthy relationship with food and with just, you know, living in moderation with, with a balanced. But I think that also came with the part of self-acceptance and that journey 
of self of accepting myself and and um you know since then i've adopted you know intuitive eating which is all about self-acceptance and i don't need to be a certain size to accept myself right i can be okay with who i am right now do you ever like look at your life and be like okay wait a second low self-esteem anxiety depression bipolar anorexia like come on god like how much is this is too much Oh yeah. Many times, many times. I'm trying to think if I, if you know what, I didn't speak to God that way until I was hospitalized and I was stuck in a psych ward, which is really a prison. I mean, especially the one in Canada where I was, I don't know in other countries how it's run, but, but I really discovered the God of my understanding in the psych ward in the locked psych ward, which is the highest um, unit. There's three different unit and that's where I discovered this God that I could get upset with, that I could get angry at, and he can handle it. Because before then, I was very afraid of God. And my form of higher power, Hashem, to me, was very punishing. You can't get upset with him. You can't, you can't question him. Because if you do, he'll punish you more. Yes. And as a visual learner, he had like this, you know, checklist, and he was constantly writing down everything I did wrong. I don't know where I developed that idea from, but... You know, it was some, it was my connection with him up until he threw me into a psych ward and that was it. I lost it at him. That was really when my kids were, were not with me. My baby was not with me. I had gone through a lot with, uh, you know, uh, in, in life in, with Shua. I mean, he shared his, his end of the story and, and you we, already heard, you already knew about his addiction. Yes. Uh, by that point. Yes. So mm -hmm. just to give context, this was after baby number four, Baruch Hashem. We had four children under the age of four. And Shua what? disclosed to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were very blessed. And, and it was a lot of pressure. And again, you know, living under this perf this perfectionism, perfectionist uh, lifestyle, it was very, very stressful to keep up the, to keep up the ruse, like to keep it going because... I was falling apart inside because my husband had disclosed to me about his struggle. We went into hiding practically. I had a lot of family living in my hometown. I didn't share with a soul. We didn't share with anyone in the family. And we joined the 12 steps together as a couple. But, you know, here I was on the outside with that perfect, perfect lifestyle. So getting the kids dressed perfectly and going out and everyone looks, you know, and nobody could imagine what was going on, you know, within, within two of us. And this was after a baby. So, you know, given my, my weaknesses, postpartum depression, which resulted into a manic episode because I was running on empty for many, many, many months in heavy therapy and hiding everything and running on empty, I couldn't keep it up. And my biggest fear at that point was falling apart because if I fall apart, everyone's going to fall apart. So I have to keep it together as a Jewish woman. You know, I'm the, I'm the foundation of the home. And, Kara Sabayas. Yes. And obviously since then I've learned that Kara Sabayas means take care of myself because if I take care of myself and I love myself and I accept myself, then I'll be able to have that, that energy to give to my family. But then it was keep it together. You can't fall apart until I did. And it was very, very traumatic. It was a very scary experience for everyone. A manic episode meant that I was running on very little sleep. I wasn't eating well. Um, and I started in a manic episode, becoming very, very impulsive, becoming very like br abrasive and loud and, 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 uh, 
Over how much time was this? Unpredictable. It was over the... Well, so the, the intense therapy and after the baby, my daughter was six or eight months when I went, when I was hospitalized. So this, and Shua disclosed to me when she was about six weeks old. So it was going on for a good four months. So four months of slowly getting more and more into your, into yeah. your mania. Yeah. Usually for me, when I go into mania, it's like a full week or full week or week and a half of not sleeping, not eating properly. Um, I mean, that's the pattern that we've seen. And usually from what I understand, that's, that's what causes a manic state in many, in many um, situations. Hashem was with me every step of the way, even though I didn't have that kind of connection with him. Somehow I, I got into the point where I was in the car ready to drive to New York because again, the next thing will help me. So if I got to New York to someone that I knew, it, I would be okay. So my kids were where they were, whether in day camp or with my husband, with my parents. And I got into the car, I started driving and something in me, because in a manic state, I'm not thinking, I'm not in my right state of mind. Like the person you're seeing right now or who people see from day to day, I'm like the opposite. And in that, and somehow something in me, I stopped at the side of the road and it must've been Hashem because he was saving me. And something in me was like, do not keep going because I won't make it. I was exhausted. So I turned around. It was a miracle. Um, I turned around and I said, okay, I'll have an intervention because that's what my family really wanted to be able to help me. And so, so people were witnessing all this. My parents were filled in. I, I had gone to them and I had said, look, I'm falling apart. And, and I'd opened up to them about what we were going through. And, and then my family found out. She was parents found out. Was this, I just want to get the timeline correctly. You're, you're in the mania, right? Does anybody know that you're in a manic episode? Are they witnessing things or it's just Shua? Like, is there, is there anybody else that's seeing what's going on here? Definitely they're seeing, they're not seeing the Bashi that's, you know, day to day. They're seeing a Bashi that's screaming or I'm cursing or I'm, or I'm like just impulsive, just running. Like I need to get out. I need to go here. I need to go there. Like I'm not, I'm not having a conversation and saying, Hey, I need to, I need to go somewhere to get help. Do you mind? It's very, very, very quick, fast paced. Like I'm moving so fast that it's very scary for my family members because they see me unraveling and they don't know how to stop it. And I don't know how to stop it. And I don't even realize that I'm in a manic state when I'm in a state of mania. So it's very scary for family to witness. And, and I know that, you know, even last year when I went into a state of mania, a lot of family members, I know, including my husband questioned, you know, how did I not see this coming? If I had been in it before, why couldn't we prevent it this time? You know, and it, and I don't know the answer to that. It happens very fast. There are many triggers that set it off. And I know that my family, they were 100% there for me, Shua's side, my side, through both manic episodes that I've been through. And what you're describing right now is the first one, correct? This was the first one. This was when we had four children and I went into a state of mania again when my daughter was about six to eight months. My mom took her, took care of her. My other children were taken care of as well by my husband, by my in-laws, just they were amazing, our family. What was it like being in the hospital locked up? The hospital was extremely traumatic. 
when I went into the hospital and I was in the emergency, that's when I really started, I guess it was a safe place for me to really unravel when that's when I went into a state of psychosis. What does that mean? The nurses were all angels. Uh, you know, I think one of my sisters came and I was telling her, you know, I was using the word angels and malachim. And um, I just, I wasn't in this present world at that point. It's really, I don't know how to describe it. I'm trying to think of the best way of describing it. It's but you have clear memories of what of, you saw. Not so much because I wasn't so lucid. Um, they gave me a very heavy medication to knock me out. So at least I got my sleep, which was what I needed at that point. But I did need to be restrained a few times. I was, again, in the hospital setting, um, unpredictable, impulsive. You can't do that in a hospital setting. And I was kind of like, because of my state of mania, I kind of had like this sense of self-pride. So, you know, that didn't go down well with the doctors and the nurses. It was kind of like, you need to abide by the rules and I didn't want to. Mm. So very, very against my character, my nature in general. So I was locked up a few times. That's when they transferred me to the locked ward. The locked ward is, as it sounds, locked. Everything's locked. All my belongings, when you go to the bathroom, I can't lock the door. My room is never locked. Um, when I go shower, I need to ask permission. They open it with a, with a key. Everything is, we need permission for supervision, monitoring. I wasn't allowed anything in the psych ward. What was your internal dialogue throughout that time? I think when I'm in a manic state, it's kind of like when someone's drunk. I don't remember a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember a lot of things that I said that I did. Um, I always feel the need to apologize afterwards because I'm so ashamed and embarrassed by all the actions and words that I said, whether it was to family members or my last hospitalization last year, I said to the doctor, when the meds kicked in, I said to him, I'm so sorry for what I said or what I did. And he smiled at me and said, it's not you, it's your illness. And that was one of the kindest things the doctor ever said to me. But in that state, I'm just on the loose. I'm, I'm, I need to be hospitalized or I need to be, you know, in a, in a controlled environment. So then I was in a, in a locked ward and all I was left with in my room was not even a pen, nothing. I didn't have the journal. I had nothing, nothing, nothing. I couldn't even see outside for months. And all I was allowed was achitas. You, you weren't able to see like no windows? No. And that, I, I, I believe it's a little bit better now. This was, you know, again, seven for years months? ago. Well, not for months. It felt like months, but for weeks. I remember going into the hospital when it was summer and I came out when it was turning fall. So I missed a, a large chunk of the summer. Wow. I'm, I'm just trying to go into that experience that you just described. Like I, I, I also spent a week. I only spent a week in the psych ward. And come to think of it, I didn't even realize. I didn't go out. I didn't go outside. If we had behaved based on certain criteria, then you're able to go out, I think, a certain point to the yard or something like that. But it didn't, it didn't entice me. But that was only seven days. Yeah. yeah, this felt like forever. My mother came with my baby to visit me when she was able to, when I was stabilized, but I hadn't seen my kids for many weeks. Shua, he's always been a support. I f at first was pushing him away, but when I was more stable, I called him and I said, come. 
And he did. He dropped everything and he came. And and for me, you know, that's, I don't know, the epitome of like, you know, someone who can stand by me and support me. And and, and he's always been like that. And And he was there. And he took care of the kids. And he brought me home. And, you know, we... It, it was at that point where we had really, you know, you kind of get married to someone and, and it's it's very beautiful and, and you see mostly strengths. I mean, unless, you know, like where we had, where I shared my weaknesses with him. But it was really at that point in our marriage where we had both witnessed and lived through each other's struggles, you know, mm-hmm. and that was really where I know in, in Yiddish, you know, we don't necessarily renew our vows, but that probably would have been a really good time when... <laughs> I chose him all over again. I decided, you know, I want to stick with this guy and I, I love so many parts of him and every part of him really. And and he chose the same with me. So it was getting to know each other on a different level and going through the, the, the real, real life. You said there was these few moments, right? Those like seeing that Jewish person in the office, hearing the doctor tell you that it's not you, it's your illness your husband choosing to stay with you. Outside of that, what was the recovery? So when I was in the psych ward, they had, they didn't have much, much support, like many support groups. Now they have a lot more last year when I was there, but then we had a little OT group and and she asked a question. She said, what's one thing you've gained from the hospital? What's one thing you're going to leave with? And I heard myself saying a second chance at life. And somehow I knew in that moment that I would never be the same after that hospitalization. And I wasn't, it changed me. It changed me as a person. It, it, I, I couldn't keep living with myself because I wasn't ready then to go open about my story. But within myself, I had to, I had to start healing. And I wanted to start healing because I had my, again, you know, there was this motivation. I always had this goal. So the goal then was I want to be with my kids. I want to be home. I don't want to be in the hospital and they're, they're not with me. And so with that goal in mind, I came out of the hospital, but I still didn't know where was the help. What was I going to do? I was familiar with the 12 steps. I had been in intensive 12 step meetings and therapy and group therapy and couples therapy. So I had experienced recovery and healing, but on a very intense level postpartum and this and at this point I would drop my kids off at school again I put on the lipstick I I pretended nobody knew I had been in the psych ward for weeks and I dropped my kids off and I would come home and I'd fall apart and I would just I'd slide it I'd I don't know if I slid into depression or I was in depression at that point but it was extremely difficult to continue functioning after living through the hospital where everything was so controlled and and to go into hiding again from the community, from my friends, from everyone. So thank God Hashem again sent, you know, the, the healing. And I chanced upon Chabad.org, Emotions Anonymous. I saw a link and I pressed on it because I was familiar again with the 12 steps and I hit gold. And that was where I said, you know, all the questions that have been going through my mind and through me for so many years that I never heard people express were on this website right in front of my face. And I'm like, I need more. So I went to my first 12-step meeting for me, not as my husband as the qualifier because he has his addiction. This was my addiction. This was my weakness. And I was finally face-to-face with 
the real me and I want to get better and I want to heal. And I saw people crying in the rooms and people were allowed to feel and it was okay. And, and that's it. That was my introduction, my path to healing. I did not have an in-face, a face-to-face group. This was a French meeting. So I went online every Monday. I closed the door. I had my Skype meeting. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps and I started recovering. I started healing and it was absolutely amazing what I was learning and what I was living through. And, and the way that our marriage, you know, survived through all this is, is really because we both focused on ourselves. And, you know, I've heard a healthy marriage is two healthy individuals that makes up a healthy marriage. And so we both went and dug deeper inside ourselves and started working on ourselves. And that was the only way that we were able to come back together as a healthy couple. I heard from Chase Taub, you know, arguing is human, like all the disagreements and things that come up between a couple and the peacemaking is divine. So I really believe that our marriage is a miracle. We both know it. It wasn't something we did. It was really God wanted us to be together and to continue, you know, living together and and growing together. But it was at some points where we needed to do our own healing and kind of, you know, take responsibility for ourselves before we were able to come back, you know, as a strong couple. And was was there ever any separation where you guys lived in there different was, places? There was a point where not, it wasn't like a therapeutic separate, it wasn't, you know, done with a therapist, but there were points here and there where, you know, I would stay at a friend or he would stay at a friend and very painful times for us. It wasn't easy. Um, again, as a visual learner, I remember sitting in group therapy and I was sharing that I felt like Shua's addiction went through our home and destroyed everything, spirituality, our marriage, our everything, everything like, like the addiction just doesn't care about, you know, who gets hurt. And it just, they're all there are, are like ashes, you know, there's nothing left. And I remember a woman who was maybe, you know, in, in a stronger point then she said to me, you know, Yes, it's like a fire. And yes, it's like it ruined your home, but you're going to find treasures afterwards. You know, like with the Tsairas and the home they found. And in that moment, I thought, impossible. And I even remember Shu and I went to his sponsor's home at one point and we sat there and I looked at this couple. They had respect for each other. They were able to even look at each other. And I thought, are we ever going to be there? We were in such a painful place as a couple. And you know, it, it happened. It happened. It took time. It took a lot, a lot, a lot of patience and the serenity prayer. God grant me patience and, and, you know, acceptance and tolerance, but by the grace of God, you know, he, he kept us together and we definitely have experienced in recovery, a much stronger and deeper marriage than we had before entering recovery. So I want to ask you a question in case somebody's listening to this yeah, and is skeptical. So I'm just going to say it in this voice as if, right, you mean to tell me that emotions anonymous and you're anon, right? So whatever. Anon. So the 12 steps is the cure-all for bipolar, anorexia, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, mania, psychosis. Really? So I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah. So the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> the answer is God. He was, he, he's the one who 
can restore me to sanity, can restore my marriage to sanity, restore anything to sanity, really, to fix. Because if he created everything and he's the, you know, the higher power, he's everything, then he created this situation. He created this problem. So when I talk to God, I say, so now send me some solutions. You got to help me here. Like you created this problem. You know all the answers. All the resources come from him. And I mean, I learned a chavez halavavais, right? So then send me, help me out, you know? And he does. He does it in his timing. He sometimes does it by like, you know, giving me a lot more pain and a lot more, you know, my mom was a midwife, so a lot more Pitocin when I don't want anymore, you know, I'm, I just want, but you know, pain is when we grow. And I remember once saying to my sponsor, I was going through a lot and I said, look, I just want it to be, you know, like, like smooth sailing. And she said to me, spare me the growth. Yes. And she said, that's when you're growing. And you know, she, you know, when, when the line is flat, the, the person's dead. Like that's when the the growing is happening. I mean, you know, think of birth and and, and any experience. Um, so the answer is God. The 12 steps is not the cure for everything. It's definitely, definitely helped me become more honest with myself, more accepting of myself because, you know, the fourth step is rigorous and it's, it's self-honesty. The acceptance came when I was able to realize, hey, I've got strengths and I've got weaknesses. And all of a sudden it became a little bit more balanced. Right. So in yeah. case somebody's listening and doesn't know, the fourth step out of the 12 steps is one where somebody takes inventory, like a chashba nefesh of, yes. of, there's four. One is a resentment list of anybody that I'm angry with, anybody, anything or anybody that I'm afraid of, Yeah. any harms done that I've done to others. And also... I mean, those are the three main ones, but also like a, an ideal for sexual behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of the time when I'm upset with someone, it's a trigger inside me. What's going on inside me? So it's really looking into myself. And so much of Hasidus talks about that. You know, it's uh, Dr. Tversky said he would sue, you know, Bill and Bob who founded AA because so much of it comes from Yiddishkeit itself. For me, it's been this journey with 12 steps, it's been, you know, really, um, I'm trying to think what, what's the cure. So the 12 steps, you know, it's, it's a God help program. It's not a self-help program. And I think that changed it for me because I was always trying to fix myself and help myself. And here I learned that I need to let go. I need to, I can admit that I'm powerless. I don't have to, but if I can admit that I don't know what to do to help myself in this situation, in any situation, I, I, I've tried everything and nothing's working and I just keep getting into this pit and into this depression or into this mode, then for me, I, I can, the only option is to let go and let God. What's occurring to me, I'm wondering if this is your experience, is that is I become, I have this foreign thought that enters into my being, which is something's wrong with you. And then I obsessively try to hide it or fix it. And letting go and letting God is my process of, number one, believing in a power greater than myself that doesn't think I'm broken and then cultivating that connection to that power. And the more I can be present with other humans who accept me no matter what, 
which means that they're saying that there's nothing, there's actually nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. But as because that thought is still in my inside me, the work is just a reminder. Yeah. You're not broken. You're not broken. Yeah. And, you know, like we're created, we're perfectly imperfect. So those imperfections are part of that, you know, package. I'm wondering if there's any other thing you'd like to share. And I'm also curious about whether like, is there, do you still take medication? So yes, I'm on medication now. And it's always a journey for me when I'm put back on medication because I was weaned off for about five years. I had three more children, Baruch Hashem. And after my seventh, this was, again, stressors in my life, not sleeping because of my mom's illness. She was touch and go for a week and a half. And that's really when I started losing sleep. It's always been a journey with medicine because it's not spoken about. I gain weight on it. There are so many reasons why I'd rather be off medication. I'd rather be regular, like, right? But this time around, then my goal was wean off the medication. This time around, since I've been on as of last summer, a year already, I've realized that this is a quality life with medication. And if this medication can help me be home with my children, with my loved ones, and can help me be stable and present and hopefully not have to be hospitalized, and it, it keeps me well, then why, why don't I embrace it? And that's been my journey this time around. Because Hashem created it for a reason, and Baruch Hashem, I'm able to be on it, and it's helping me. I, I recall people sharing that, that they don't want to be on the medication because of how it makes them feel. In addition to like the weight or things like that that yes. might happen. Yes. So, so what is what are the feelings that you get as a result of being on the medication and how do you Yeah. So I guess it depends on the different medication and there's I know, you know, that there's for sure people who experience, you know, kind of like being like a guinea pig, like kind of being tested, you know, which one experiment, you know, experimenting. Okay, maybe we should take this one a bit less, this a bit more. And that's very tough. Is that based on each person and their body and their psychological response to this? So it's different for everybody. Yes, different for everybody. That's why we have psychiatrists and people who are, you know, really know their stuff. But like recently I heard that sometimes a medication that's given to someone who's depressed can, can cause them to go into a state of mania because it's an antidepressant, but maybe it's too much. So really, I know that some people feel like, you know, doctors are experimenting with them. It's very tough to, you know, try to find the right dose and adjust. And yes, there are side effects and, you know, but I can only speak for myself. The medication I've been put on is helping me. It's helping me live, you know, a much better life and, and not surviving, living. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for my medication today. My children know I'm on medication you know, it's not a secret. And the a letter off of shame is share. So when I share, the shame just melts away. And that's been part of my journey of sharing with others. And not only from a selfish point of view, because obviously it's very healing and it helps me to break that stigma and to, you know, just just shed all that shame. And But, but knowing that it can help other people as well. Mm, yeah, there were times where... I- in sobriety, where I would go through difficult times and having had already the lived experience of seeing how my experience can benefit others, that got me through certain times. Like yeah. this, right now, this difficulty is what I'm going to be able to use as a reference point to help others. Yes, I, I can relate to that. 
anything that you'd like to share before you go? Any final messages to somebody struggling or somebody living with somebody that's with addiction or struggling or the community? Yeah. So I think one of the strongest messages for us, for Shu and I, for myself, was it's not you, it's your addiction. And whether it was a doctor saying that to me as an ill patient, you know, with my bipolar, with my diagnoses, whether it was me learning that about my husband who has his addiction, it really gives me a chance to appreciate the person as a person. And nobody really gets to choose their struggle. You know, I, I always say like, if I was given the choice, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen bipolar. I wouldn't have chosen depression, anxiety or whatever I've been given. And so it really, it's like seeing the person and then the addiction is separate than the person. That's something that's helped me in my marriage. It's helped me in my own experience and uh, that you're not alone. I think that's my my biggest message too. You know, I felt so alone for so many years and, and you're not alone. There are so many people that are going through it. There's so much help out there. If somebody is inspired by that and would like to connect with you, is there a way that people can connect with you? Definitely. Probably the best way is by email, B-A-S-H-I-E dot H at gmail.com. Thank you so much for coming here and sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Thank you for all the staying that you did in working on yourself and staying with your husband and all those things that brought you to today. Thank and you. And on behalf of the community and anybody listening, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please join us for the next episode of the Nishamas podcast. This is Mashadav Khanan. This podcast is a community endeavor, and we rely on your support. For more information on sponsoring an episode or to share your feedback, email us at podcast at